Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Alan Parker said, sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Joe Kramer. Hello, Joe. Hello, Stuart. How are you, man? I'm very well. I'm very well. And as, as I was explaining to you in the preamble, and just so people know who you, what you do... You are the first composer, film composer, I've had on the podcast, which feels amazing, really, as a fact, but uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm honoured to be the first. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, the film we've come to talk about is one that just recently played at Frightfest, The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot, which is a... It's... I wanted to... I, I, when I was writing about this, one thing that struck me was uh, in a, in a film festival where people expect horror films, this isn't a horror film. But in <laughs> off the title, you've been mistaken for not thinking it was one of the most highest high concept horror films you'd ever like to see. Um, but it isn't a sort of rewriting of modern history that Tarantino did with Inglorious Bastards. It is. It is really. I think it's really about. A man played by Sam Elliott, uh, who is growing old and coming to terms with the memories of a life lived, as he begins to accept his own mortality. But even more so is that he has had a somewhat colourful past in the sense that he has attempt made an assassination attempt on Hitler, and that sacrifice for his country. The question that hangs over the whole film was that worth? I guess was that worth it? in terms of what sacrifices he made in his own life, in particular, the woman he loved. Does that seem like a fair assumption? That seems like a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, um, summation of the, the, the events of the film works mm. for me. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what it is. And it's, and, it, and, and I should add that it's, it's just, it's just glow. It, it's a sumptuous movie. And, and Sam Elliott is, is as, as uh, Joe and I were just talking before we started recording is, it's just masterful on screen, and he does he does so much by doing so little. And actors should probably watch watch his performance in it to see how much you have to do really to convey emotion on the big screen. I agree. It's um, it's really restrained, but the restraint is every choice that Sam makes is deliberate. It's mm. a choice. Everything you're seeing, he's thought about, and come to that point so it's there's a minimalism to it or a restraint to it, the performance but it's all on purpose indeed it is and one admirable one scene i was, I was sort of highlighting to you on, on on the in the preamble was there's there's a moment where he sits down to a tv dinner all alone and it and it's the only time we see him do it but you can read into that scene that this is 
never this is not the first time it's happened this is you know this is a recurring disappointment that he sits down to most days now and yet we only see him do it once and uh, you know it's it's quite easy to read that into it yeah well and you know bob and sam bob the director Mm. and sam have they did a lot of um excellent work Bob in writing the film and Sam in his portrayal throughout the film mm. so that, you know, there are certain things you do see more than once. And that sort of, you know, sets the audience up for this understanding that his life is a repetitive thing. Mm. So then you could show the TV dinner once and we've, we're, we've been taught by the filmmaker that this is just another part of every day that he lives, you know, mm. sleep, falling asleep in that chair and waking up in the morning and the TV has static on it yeah it's some it's some distance isn't it from the all-american hero who went over to to the russian border yeah i I mean (laughs) it's very much about that you know there the glory of the past does not you know a glorious past does not mean a glorious present or future Mm. totally now before we get into diesel about how you scored that film i want to ask you a couple of questions about you as as a musician and you as a as a, as a man who's obviously deeply interested in film scores and uh, anybody that wants to uh, to, um, to yeah. check out your IMDb list, there is an abundance of things, uh, starting, <laughs> with, starting with, uh, I, I, get, I mean, I've listened to Chris McCurry on Jeff Goldsmith a number of times uh, mm-hmm. talking about his filmmaking, and he strikes me as one of the uh, nicest guys in film. It's just the way he talks. Uh, I've not met the guy. Uh, but you obviously, you did Weigh the Gun, um, Mission Impossible Five, is it? Yep. Uh, amongst many other things, I mean, I, I could I could go on and on, but they're two Chris McQuarrie ones that, um, that, that, that 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 stood out for me. We also did Jack Reacher together. Of course, yeah, Jack Reacher as well. Yes. Um, yep. I was. It's it's a rare thing when I, I was I was getting ready for the podcast to talk to you, and I was just overawed by the amount <laughs> of things that you've done. So, I mean, like I say, for people listening, it's worth checking out. Um, I, I've done I mean, I've been doing it for about 23 years now, uh, professionally in, in LA, and I've done about 100 movies, TV movies, feature films, uh, documentaries, um, TV series. I've done a couple TV series, and um, some short films in there as well. So it's been... It's been a busy life. Ninety nine percent of it is stuff that people, you know, probably haven't heard of, or if they've heard of it, they wouldn't associate it with the guy who scored Mission Impossible. Mm. But um, it's been a great sort of uh, career of, of honing my craft, so that when the time came to do something like Mission Impossible, or in, even even more recently, the Man Who Killed Hitler and the Bigfoot, that mm. I've sort of done my time and I have the tools that I need to, you know, do what I'm asked to do to the best of my ability. It feels, if, as if, uh, it's really weird for me because I, 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 I work to soundtracks in Jack Reacher's one that I've, uh, I've often uh, put on while I'm uh, trying to, because I, I screenwrite as well outside of the podcast. So, yeah. so while I'm, it's, 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 you always try and, well, not you, me, me as a writer, yeah. I always try and pick, pick, pick something that feels like the mood of what I'm writing. Um, Great. So yeah. So well, if you uh, sell a screenplay, I want five percent. <laughs> Do you think the DNA's? You think your DNA's in me writing now? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, look. Um, let's 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 find out a little bit about you before we go into yeah. into the process of, of of scoring a film. So, um, thinking thinking about that time you've been doing it, and and, and uh, there's a comment on your on your IMDb talking about you doing something, doing a score for a Super Eight movie in uh, at the age of fifteen. So. This has been mm-hmm. a, this has been a hell. This has been a journey that never stopped. I don't think I don't think you could probably remember it starting. It doesn't feel like it could ever end. But uh... yeah, you know, my my grandfather was a projectionist. Right. Um, my dad's father and my dad was a he loved music and he was a hobbyist musician. And he and my uncle wrote and recorded their own songs in the relatively primitive late 60s and 70s at home mm-hmm. as hobbyists so they had open real recorders where you could do like twin track like l- the left channel and then the right channel so you could do some like minor overdubs yeah and then they would ping pong from machine to machine to build up it was just my dad and my uncle wow and they'd make an album uh, a step at a time and in, in a very very primitive way but 
the sort of do-it-yourself MacGyver attitude of that uh, must have rubbed off on me. So as a kid, I would, you know, playing the piano like my dad and writing songs, you know, um, so nothing was, too was, profound. Was the piano your gateway instrument, as it were? Yeah, because we had one in the house and we didn't have a guitar and we didn't have any classical instruments, violins or flutes or anything. Yeah. But we had a piano. And even as a little kid, you, you know, you just, you hit a key and it makes a sound. So it's a pretty sort of basic starting point. Mm. And, um, in terms of film scores and movies like that, I, this, probably the, the defining moment, which won't come as a surprise to anybody who's heard me talk about this before, was Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been about, I was almost six when it came out. So I was just, just barely, still five and my parents say that we went and saw the movie and all the way home i was singing the song in the car the theme song the tune and then when we got home i just started playing it on the piano and i don't remember this but my dad tells me that not only was i playing the melody but i was playing like the chords with the left hand all by ear we didn't have the sheet music so um even though i don't really remember this um palpably or, or, or from my own point of view, I've heard the story and um, sort of as I try to trace back things, you know, it's the songwriting of my dad and my uncle and it's this experience with Star Wars that seemed to have the biggest impact on my musical development. So I grew up writing songs but also loving film music and, you know, I had the LP to Superman the movie and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., uh, Temple of Doom. And then in the mid-80s, about a well, actually, in 83, I first met a filmmaker named Scott Storm who mm-hmm. made films on Super 8. Uh, it was before everybody had a home video camera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you bought Super 8 film, sound film, and two-minute reels. Yeah. And each reel cost about 50 bucks to buy and then develop. So to make a feature film, you know, if you're even if you're shooting a one-to-one ratio – you know, I haven't sat down and done the math, but I remember these movies costing, you know, well over a thousand bucks just for the film, right. which in 80, you know, 83, 84 was kind of unheard of. You know, no one was doing that yet. There was no Robert Rodriguez or, or uh, Steven Soderbergh yet making movies like this. Yeah. So I got this great experience as a young student, seventh grader, eighth grader, meeting this guy who made movies. And he went off to film school and would come back to – I grew up in Albany, which is about three, four hours north of New York City. And I've stopped off on a bus. I've stopped off on a bus there once. Yes. <laughs> I, got off and on, I got on and off a bus there every day for uh, <laughs> 12 years. So uh, he, he would come back to Albany and mm. um, shoot his student films for college in Albany. Right. So that they didn't look like everybody else's. You know, everybody else was shooting theirs in, in Central Park or Manhattan, and he'd come up and shoot his in the woods. Where you know, I grew up in a very woody part of Albany, hmm. so um, I was acting in one of these, and I asked him, "Well, what do you do for music?" And he was like, "Well, you know, I I usually use like my Tangerine Dream records or my Peter Gabriel." Uh, the instrumental parts of Peter Gabriel songs. And I was like, well, you know, my dad is this musician and we have this studio at home. And by this point I had some, you know, four track, my dad had a four track and I had an electric guitar. We had um, a couple of synthesizers and a sampler. And he, Scott was delighted that the prospect of having like original music in the movie. And so I started writing music for this movie that I was acting in. Right, and it, it was a ninety-minute movie he was making during a semester break. Wow! And so we did that together, and after that, I had this experience, you know, at fifteen of scoring a movie, which was pretty crazy. And it was all instinctive, and it was all very much in that MacGyver fly by the seat of your pants thing, because the film was on film, and there was no. Uh, computer of any kind. There was no synchronization of any kind. Right. Either he would bring the either he would bring the projector over, and I would improvise something straight into the projector. And the projector was also like his editing bay. And the project the Super 8 film had a teeny tiny stripe of cassette tape glued to it, basically. And you could record 
two tracks of audio on that. Wow. But the playhead or the record, the erase head was not working. So you could actually record over a track and you could hear what was underneath it still. So you would have the dialogue that we shot on location with a microphone plugged into the camera. And then on top of that, we would lay music or sound effects and it wouldn't completely erase the dialogue. So you could still hear the dialogue and it was totally primitive and, and it was actually broken, which is the way we were able to make it work. Yeah. And you know, some music, what I would do is I would think about the scene I had acted in and write like a three minute piece that had that mood. And then Scott would track it in yeah. by, you know, finding the right moment on his cassette player and then laying it in. And then sometimes I would actually do it. Scott would bring the projector over I would play alongside the picture, and when we came up with something we liked, we would actually record it right into the projector. And if I made a mistake, we had to live with it because you couldn't go again or you would obliterate the dialogue. So you, so, you, so you were basically doing like the old, the old cinemas with the silent movies where the piano would be playing while the film played. You were doing that in sort of piecemeal exactly. episodes. Wow. And so what happened was I went to Berkeley in Boston Music School, and mm-hmm. I – I went there thinking I was going to be like a singer songwriter and take the production classes and make a demo. And instead I discovered they had a film music program and I took one of the intro courses and in the intro course discovered there was a whole science and a whole craft to synchronizing music to picture by counting frames um, and, and matching that with tempos on a metronome and I became fascinated with the sort of math of it all and the, the, the amount of control you could have with the music that I was able to get in these projects with Scott, who by the time I went to college, him and I had done like four movies together. So uh, I switched gears and decided to pursue film music. And uh, the other thing I thought was I would get I would get education in conducting, orchestration, music editing which in turn I could apply to sound editing. And I thought I'd have these skills so I could sort of work under the radar and make a living when I moved to LA mm. while I waited for my big break as a composer. So let me get this right. So what you just said then is that you, you started off initially with the idea of putting music into film. And then by the time you go and get an opportunity to do an intro course, studying it as part of a music course at university, you begin to see that actually there is, there is a method to and a science to composing as well as the creative side correct wow and that fascinated me fascinates me already i I had no idea so that ability to um write a piece of music that could bend and weave around the movie and that you could ahead of time calculate how fast the music would be and then how many beats it would take to get from say the cut to the gun to the cut to the man shooting the woman, you know, mm. well, that's always going to be, let's say 110 frames on a film and, a, and film runs at 24 frames a second. So yeah. you can start to figure out, okay, well, I have this much time at this tempo. That's precisely this many beats. And the, the ability to start figuring all that out, you know, fascinated me. And the whole science behind what my sort of favorite composer, John Williams, did, and the, the the degree to which he turned what should be a sort of clunky process into a sort of a beautiful ballet. Yeah. Uh, it sort of got me going. Oh, I could tell. Yeah. I could tell. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's um, you've, you've, you've basically just opened the curtains and showed me Wizard of Oz at the moment, I'm feeling like. Um <laughs> But uh, let's let's dive in then to the, the man yeah. the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. Um, so where, where where does your involvement begin as the composer of that of the score for that film? I suppose if we you know want to take a minute and really trace it back, it starts uh, shortly after I finished Mission Impossible: mm-hmm. uh, Rogue Nation, yeah. uh, which I had moved to England and scored the film. So I'd been gone for about six months from my home, and then I got home. And I had a new agent and a new publicist and was working out, uh, you know, trying to maximize the, on the exposure that mission got me. And my agent got a email one day from a filmmaker in Massachusetts who had made a short film and he wanted me to do the music. And I was like, well, you know, got a budget. My agent was like, no, I said, well, I don't want to do anything for free. (laughs) You know, being Mr. Big shot Hollywood at the moment. Yeah. Uh, 
And she was like, I think you really need to take a look at this movie. I've never seen anything like it before. And it was by Bob Kraskowski. And Bob, in college, uh, uh, had made a comic strip. And Bob has this tremendous talent as a visual artist, as an inker and, and, and drawer, yeah. if that's the way to, to describe it. And he made a three-panel comic strip for his college newspaper. And it m- migrated to the internet. It has this whole life. It's called Elsie Hooper. And he'd made a five-minute short film about this based on this comic strip. And I ended up doing the music for that. And when we finished that, he was really happy with the music. And I was really charmed by him and the whole project. And he revealed to me that he had written a script called The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. Right, you know, okay. I was like, well, right, of course you have. you know." And he <laughs> said, I want you to read it because I want you to score it. And so – he sent it to me, and I read the first about 20 pages, and I put it down, and I called him, and I said, I'm not reading anymore. I want to see the movie, uh, and of course I'll score it. And that was how I sort of ended up on the uh, on the team for that film. Right, okay. And it was uh, – I'm so glad I made the decision. I mean I, I read those first 20 pages. I got to about where – I would have read the bar scene and the scene with Aiden going into Hitler's bunk, Hitler's um, mansion. Mm. And then um, probably the scene where he leaves the bar and looks at the moon and has the fight outside the car. And I just thought, yeah, you know, I've seen enough. There's a, it's funny. I've been trying to think about who it reminds me of. And it reminds, you know, I know Hal Ashby is a big influence on Bob and I love, you know, being there and, uh, Harold and Maude and Hal Ashby films. But I also think there's a quality of the collaborative work between Stephen King and Frank Darabont. You know, I could almost yeah. see them making this movie at, mm. you know, at some point in their careers. They, they might have done it. And in a similar way that King comes from horror but can write something like The Green Mile, mm-hmm. I think that's a similar thing here. You know, um, Bob had worked as as a career working with Lucky McKee, who made The Woman, and Bob uh, Lucky has a bit of a reputation in, at Fright Fest and in horror circles as well. So mm. it's like these guys took their interest and skill at horror and applied it to uh, something else and used their reputations in it to attract the audience and then subvert their expectations. So when when you when you're so you've 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 he's gone away and started yep. and raised the finance and started to make this movie and you're you're on board to be his composer. So where where does your involvement begin then as as the the person to write the music for it? And how do the conversations sure. start with with either you or with Bob to you? Which way? How does it work for you? Well, for me, in a perfect world, what I like to do is I like to get on the movie early enough. That I have, that I don't have to rush to get it done, but late enough that the movie is tonally where it needs to be. Um, I'd rather not get on a movie. I'd rather not start writing music for a film um, explicitly before they shoot the movie, for example, um, unless everyone is really confident that they've got the tone of the thing down, you know? Um, So in a perfect world, I get the, uh, like maybe the second cut of the movie or the director's cut of the movie, you know, ideally. And the the director and the editor have figured out like, this is a comic scene. This is a serious scene. The film is 95% drama and 5% action, whatever, Mm. as opposed to like, because it's very possible if somebody just told me the title I would have started writing, you know, Bernard Herrmann sort of psycho music or Chris Young type <laughs> horror music and then gotten the film and been like, nothing I've done it works, you know? Mm. So what I do is I get the movie and sometimes the editor and the, the director have put temp music on and sometimes they, sometimes they haven't. And generally if they've put temp music on, I'd rather hear the temp music just so I have some idea of what they're expecting because if the whole thing is, you know, Vangelis, then I know what they're expecting. If the whole thing's John Williams. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah, so that doesn't doesn't sort of, sort of put, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Um, It doesn't straight jacket my thinking. I'm going to say straight jacket or put you off knowing that, you know, Vangelis or John Williams. I mean, I'd rather not watch it over and over again with the temp score, but I'll watch it once or twice. 
And is is it is it that is it that organic though? In the sense, in the sense that you go away and watch the whole movie with either the tent music or not, and then begin to think about what the score needs. Or is yeah. It... So what I do is I watch the film as a film. I sit, I turn off all the lights in my home theater, and I watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I watch it in a variety of ways. I turn off all the sound, and I just watch the picture. Mm-hmm. If I have the ability on my computer, if I've got the film in the right format, I'll turn off all the color and watch it in black and white. Really? Then I'll just listen to the movie and I will do, you know, I won't look at it. I'll just listen to the dialogue and the sound. And then I will listen to it once with the temp score. And then I will watch and listen to the movie about 50 times in a variety of different ways. Hopefully not more than two or three times with the temp music. And then, because what I want to do is I want to start to figure out the rhythm of the movie and where the movie's pushing and pulling, where it feels like it needs the music to push and where it feels like it needs the music to slow it down. Moments that work without music at all and moments that need music. And it's not, there's no rule book. It's, it's, there's no one answer either because a different composer could score a movie this a different way and it could still be a successful film and score got you so i try to find what my solution to the challenges of the film i try to find what my solution is going to be for that and in the case of hitler and bigfoot two things that influenced me were um sam neill's performance and i was in the car listening to some uh, classical music and a and a specific piece by bach came on and it just had this feeling that reminded me of Cal, and it seemed like something that he would have listened to, you know, in quiet in moments of like quiet thoughtfulness. And I sent that to Bob and said, I don't know if this is gonna if something we use in the movie or not, but I just I want you to listen to this and see what you think of it. And he and he agreed that there was a quality of Calvin in this music. So that went in that went onto my little list that I keep of you know musical ideas. And then I started writing some themes and. I would Skype with Bob and play them for him or FaceTime, you know, and play them for him. Cause I was in LA and he was in Massachusetts Right. and he would hear something and go, I like that. Uh, this other thing I think is a little too Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's say if it was something for the Nazis or, you know, mm. um, or this other thing is a little too maybe twee, you know? And so I would, refine things over the internet with Bob. And then I flew out to El Paso where he, he eventually moved to El Paso to cut the movie. And I moved out, I went out there to visit him and we sort of quote spotted the movie, even though by this point we'd, but we'd all agreed like where music was going to be or not, but we sort of had a, the formality of a spotting session, which is where the director, any producers, the editor, the sound guy, we all sit down and go through the movie and talk about, where the music's going to come in, where it's going to go out, what it's going to do. And there were moments that Bob hadn't scored that I thought should be scored. And there were moments that Bob had used temp music in that I thought worked better without temp music. Um, for example, and and even then I said, I'll still record it, but I highly encourage you not to use it. And so there's some sequences in the film where he's being sort of, Sam Elliott's being followed by some people in a car. And it had a sort of Spielberg-y, E.T., Raiders-y quality to it in the temp score that I thought is is not going to be necessary when we actually finish the film. And I wrote it and we recorded it, but we didn't use it. it we didn't need it. And some of that also has to do with when you're watching a movie on a phone, you know, when you're checking shots or cuts on a phone or on a, on a Avid. And then you go and see it in a big theater and you realize, you know, when the movies, is, it's when the movie's a big movie like that, you realize it's very clear that he's, these people are the way Bob shot it. These people are mysterious and shady. We don't need the music to drive that home. So, yeah, you know, that sort of gives you an overview of sort of the way we make decisions, like the scene on the table where the government asks Barr to come kill the Bigfoot. And then he sort of explains to them what really happened in World War Two. Uh, there was no music in the movie for that. There was never supposed to be, but I saw it and told Bob, I really think we could do something cool here. And when I did it and played the, what I do is I make a synthesized mock-up of what the music will, uh, you know, it approximates what the music will sound like with the live orchestra. Hmm. And when he heard that, he was like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. That's great. Let's do that. So what for, what for you with a film like this, compared to experiences you've had before, what was... What was the challenge, musically speaking, for you in, in this film? 
Well, the, there were uh, beyond obviously the score itself, but, but like well, from specifics. a practical point of view, just from a totally practical point of view, it, when you're doing a Tom Cruise movie uh, and especially a Mission Impossible, you kind of have the world at your fingertips. You know, we had a sequence that took place in Morocco, and I wanted a Moroccan musician to come in and overdub some uh, stringed instruments. And we just got on the phone and found one and brought him in, and there was no no uh, concern about you know the practical matters of budget or schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now with Bob's film, you know what's what's amazing about it is he's assembled this bonkers talented team: John Sales, Doug Trumbull, Lucky McKee, um, Sam Elliott, Aiden Turner, and yet it's his first film, and it's it's being made on the independent film level. So we want this, you know, million dollar orchestral score, but we have to figure out a way to do that within the realities of the budget. So that was a challenge and figuring out where I could in much the same way that, you know, he had to figure out how he could put a 1940s steam train in the middle of a empty field in Massachusetts and make it look like it was Europe in World War Two. I had to figure out how to convince you we had a hundred piece orchestra you know when it wasn't going to be possible for every moment of the score and so there was some sleight of hand if you will happening there to help make that illusion i suppose you could call it compelling um from a dramatic point of view i wouldn't say it was a challenge but the interesting gauntlet laid before me was to tell the life story of one guy but it's two different stories because for Aiden Turner's portrayal of Calvin Barr, it's about somebody at the beginning of an adventure and there's, there's love in the air. There's uh, the promise of glory and excitement. And then for Calvin Barr played by Sam Neill, Sam Elliott, sorry. It's a life of um, uh, disillusionment and regret and loss and we're cutting between those two lives and not in, and not in for Aiden Turner's part it's not strictly chronological you know it's about how our memory works as human beings and that we don't remember things in the order they happened all the time things come back to us from different parts of our life and so it was it was i had to be careful to maintain um, like an emotional continuity so that that story worked and resonated for the audience. And so that the moment that Bob, the moments Bob chose to be pinnacle moments paid off. And then the, the third sort of thing that I kept in mind was that there were three or four key sequences where there was no dialogue, where the story was told entirely through visuals and sound, including music. And I had to be sure that I had thematic material that would make those moments compelling it wasn't a film that I could just sort of make, find a cool synth patch and drone through the whole movie, which is what so much of contemporary film music has become. Instead, I had to go back and look at the masters like Bernard Herman and John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and David Shire and how they could actually write actual music to solve these problems rather than use, rely on production value. So those were the three sort of things that I focused on. And can um, just uh, like I said, I'm not, I've never spoke to a film composer before. So you've already hinted at this in some of the stuff you've already said, but maybe go into it a bit more. But the idea of of the kind of strict strict brief or what's obvious from the the tent music that's been put over the top versus asking you to tell the filmmaker what the scene could use or needs. How how do you balance? How do you balance that? Because obviously there's still the practicalities of making the music and coming up with something. Yeah, I mean, the tent music is not... Bob is very good, you know, um, in this... Tent is not there saying, give... He never said, I want that. Give me that. Okay. He would say... Like, for example, there was a sequence in the film that he they had used uh, Ray's theme from Force Awakens by John Williams. Right. And it was an interesting choice, but it was totally wrong. And we all agreed it was totally wrong. But they picked it because it had a size to it that they that they wanted me to think in terms of don't be don't don't feel like you have to say stay small because of budget or production value. We want mm. something epic sounding here. And. They said, obviously, this film, this music has far too much of an attachment to Star Wars and, 
you know, it's too distinctive. We would, we don't want that. We want mm. something else, but something that has that feeling of size and growth that starts out small and gets big. Um, uh, there was another sequence in the film where I saw it and I pulled up a piece of music and said, I think something like this would work great here. And that, and they agreed. Mm. So there was a case where I was even sort of temping the movie, if you will. Um, and you know, then there were places where what I did had nothing to do with anything. Anybody told me, I just sort of turned off my brain and felt what I thought the, the scene should be. So like the drive into town where Sam Elliott gets in the car with his dog and drives into town and then he thinks he's got a stone in his shoe, but he can't, he can't find it. Then he finds a lottery ticket. Hmm. That whole sequence was just, I just cooked that up from scratch. You know, that was just me reacting to the movie and then figuring out, okay, this is what it needs. Um, there wasn't, I can't even, I know there was temp there, but it was nothing like what I did and I can't even remember what it was like now. I find, I mean, I, I find it fascinating with, vis, with with film being such a visual media that often it can look terrible, and I can watch it. But if it sounds terrible, it's almost impossible to watch. Which sounds like an oxy. It sounds like it's the wrong way of doing it. Or, or, or if the music is completely off with what you're watching, again, it becomes. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? How much the audio how much influence the audio has on our, on our viewing experience when obviously our eyes are doing a lot of the work, but actually our ears are being fed. So well, this is why I like to watch the movie without any sound. Yeah. So like if you watch the end of aliens without any sound and Lance Henriksen is like halfway through the floor hmm. and she's in that, uh, mech suit, that load lifter suit. Yeah. And the alien queen is screaming and there's wind. If you watch that sequence without any sound, it looks like the cheapest thing you've ever seen. And you see, you can just, if you critical at all about how films are made, you can totally see all the wires showing, if you will, mm. metaphorically speaking. But then when you turn the sound on, you've got the wind and the music and the screams of that alien. Everything comes to life in a way that makes you just don't believe it you know what i mean you, or you don't believe how what a difference it makes is what i mean you and you in fact totally believe the scene you know another example you can go on youtube and find or and i know it's out on the blu-ray too you can find the first edit of the cantina scene from star wars and just it's the production sound and no sound effects no sound design and no music and just the difference that makes in that scene mm. you know it's really amazing how bad and cheap movies look when the sound is wrong. The, the, other, the other way around as well is that I found that if I listen to the score before I ever see a movie, mm -hmm. it doesn't, if, especially if I like the score, it doesn't half help the film. One particular, I remember, I never saw, I never saw Only God Forgives for a long time after I'd listened to Cliff Martinez's score. And by the time right. I got to watch the movie, it was like going to see my favorite band, if that right. makes sense. Because <laughs> obviously, and, the, and that was to the detriment or the no, benefit the, of the to film. the benefit of the film. It was like, yeah, okay. it was like I felt so comfortable. Well, like here's an example, and I I may get you know you people may throw rocks at me for this one, but uh, you know I tend to study a lot of the scores that John Williams makes, and I tend to try to study them. I try to listen to them, you know, LA, I spend hours in the car. So I use that time to try to study film scores and I try to make playlists where the score is in the order of the film. So it's not an album that's been reshuffled or resequenced, which a lot of film composers, you know, when they put the album out, they, they rearrange the music to be something more of a listening. In fact, you know, the soundtrack album I intend to do for Hitler and Bigfoot, the tracks are resequenced a little bit because when I put it in the strict film order, you know, without the movie, it, it just doesn't, it's not as effective as it could be, but crystal skull, Indiana Jones and the crystal skull. I listen to that score from beginning to end in film order. And got to really appreciate the subtleties of the scoring. And then when I watched I'd only seen the movie once and I watched it again and my appreciation for the movie was much bigger, higher the second time because I, this, uh, 
because my familiar familiarity with the score had, you know, increase, uh, improved my appreciation of the movie. Now, you know, it's still, it, I don't know if it's ever going to be on the same level as Raiders. I don't know if anybody realistically think could expect it to be, but my appreciation for the film went up because of my understanding of the score. Now, one thing that's always fascinating about anybody that writes music, let alone to sort of, to sort of um, film scoring, but is is the idea of coming up with new ideas. Now, let, let me let me expand on that a second. It's the yeah. idea that you've obviously only got so many chords, so many notes, so many octaves, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The human ear can only hear so much. So uh, now, as a writer, I know that I can write little things on post-it notes, and I can stick them on me notice board or write sentences in, on my text tenses on my phone to myself or write on my whiteboard. How how yep. do you, how does how do you as a, when you, especially if you're on a project like the man kill Hitler and then the Bigfoot, where your your what are your doodles and your sketches? How does that work with music? Well, I have a I just keep books around and I have a piano and I keep a sketchbook on the piano with staff mm-hmm. paper on it. Yeah, and when I get an idea, you know, I sort of think I sort of subscribe a little bit to something McCartney once said about working with Lennon. Hmm. And that the two of them didn't really write music. They didn't know. They didn't know music notation. Right. They could write the lyrics down and the chord symbols, but they didn't know how to write quarter notes and eighth notes and on staff paper. But Paul always sort of said, "Look, if it wasn't good enough for us to remember it, it probably wasn't good enough to worry about." <laughs> you know. So, you know, a lot of ideas I get, you know, in the shower actually. You know, I'm shaving in the shower and I suddenly think, oh, this could be the solution to the particular problem I have to deal with in the movie. And I'll just remember it while I'm in the shower and then get out and throw a towel on and run out to the piano and write it down in my notebook. Or, you know, in the worst case scenario, while I was in London for Hitler and Bigfoot this time around, I'm also developing some thematic material for another project while I'd be on the bus you know, I'd be on the 266 to Hammersmith and I'd be singing into my phone a little <laughs> melodic idea, you know, like when I was doing Mission Impossible, if I got stuck on it, on an idea, I was working off Baker Street. Yeah. Uh, and I would just go for a walk and I'd be walking around going bump, bump, and I'd come back from my walk with the answer to the to the problem I was trying to solve. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of memory, writing stuff down, and then in a worst-case scenario, having the little, the little voice memo on my phone as a backup. Now, this is, this is a bigger question. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if there's an answer to it. It's, not, it's certainly not one about – it's not about you personally, but it's something that I've, I've kind of observed over the years in the sense of I, I, what I love about film school music is the way that it obviously evokes, evokes emotions and it, and it mm-hmm. passes you around and it makes you feel warm and – cold and you know blankets wrapped around you whatever you know love is in the air all those things and yet and yet there's a there's a kind of i don't know whether i think you could call it inverted snobbery between film score composition and classical music composition which is for an auditorium you know why why is there that why why do you think that divide exists between the way that popular culture talks about i think all kinds of all kinds of music have a vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Heavy metal has a vocabulary. You know, yeah. a lot of heavy metal revolves around what what musicologists would call the tritone, mm-hmm. um, which is a particular interval between chords, and that interval actually goes back to Baroque music and earlier, where it was, when music was primarily written for liturgical purposes, and the tritone was forbidden. It was considered the devil's interval. No way. And and ironically, it's <laughs> uh, forms the backbone of like early Black Sabbath and and the roots of heavy metal. You're not making now, this is true. You're not making I swear to God, yeah. I'll, you know. <laughs> My God, that's um, another that's another curtain pull back on Wizard of Oz for me. Thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. So, you know, um classical music comes from a very rigid set of rules that evolved over and you know, when I say classical, I'm really speaking about the overall genre of symphonic concert hall music. Okay. You know, and not just the literal classical era of Mozart and Beethoven. You know, this includes mm. the romantic era of Tchaikovsky 
and the uh, ballets of Stravinsky, Wagner, Respighi, the whole gamut, even Aaron Copeland. Well, this all, all of this music evolved from a very strict set of rules that one by one was loosened and liberated. Um, I, a lot of contemporary f- film music, I mean, the early film music like Korngold and Max Steiner came from Wagnerian opera. And then in the fifties, jazz started to creep in and maybe even the forties. And you start to hear jazz creep in and not only in terms of instrumentation, say, including a saxophone, but also in terms of the vocabulary of jazz and the, what in Berkeley we would call tensions, what some players call passing tones. They're notes that, you add to a traditional scale to create a jazz sound. And then you take that a step further and then you uh, get a thing like West Side Story, which is heavily jazz influenced or Man with the Golden Arm. And then you get into the 70s with David Shire doing Pelham, which is a total jazz score or The Conversation, which is very jazzy. Now, at the same time, you have a guy like John Williams who studied classical music, but in many ways seemed to have his heart set on jazz and his friendship with Henry Mancini. You know, he, there's a great vinyl LP floating around out there called the John Towner touch, which is Towner was his middle name. And it looks like for a, like for a minute there, he tried to embark on a career as a jazz pianist, uh, doing combo work. And, I hear those jazz influences creeping into his work as a film composer in the seventies, very much so in that there's a lot of things in star Wars that to me sound more like jazz than they do like classical music. And I think that creates a, a difference, you know, that some of what you're hearing, the difference between those two things comes from the jazz influence. Got you, got you. And then What's happened since then is that Hans Zimmer sort of emerged as the pri- he, he, he sort of emerged as the uh, primary driving force in film music um, in the '90s, and we're still sort of feeling the impact of that emergence because what happened was filmmakers, starting with Soderbergh, filmmakers started making movies with people that they knew doing the music. Up until that point, you know film music was done by professional film composers. And then you started having Soderbergh and Robert Rodriguez and other different filmmakers making their own films for no money and getting their, their friends to do the score. Okay. So that, that revolution also, so it's that filmmaking revolution was a revolution in film scoring as well. Yeah. So okay, that you okay. ended up, you ended up with composers who played keyboard in a rock band now suddenly scoring movies. And, They'd get out their DX7 and they'd find a spooky patch and they'd play D minor and that was the cue. And it, um, the 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 composing side of it started to lose ground to the production value side of it. And now with you know the overabundance of computer technology, it's not that hard to make something that sounds really slick without necessarily having to really study composition of any kind. Um, And, and in much the same way that you can shoot a film on your iPhone, you could make a score on your iPhone. You know, I I don't see any, uh, I don't see anything holding back anybody from scoring a movie using GarageBand. Um, but what's changed is that I suppose what it would be like, what ha- what has happened to film music with technology would be imagine that to write a screenplay, but you were illiterate. You couldn't, you didn't know how to spell. Yeah. Now you knew how to read, but you didn't know how to spell. So if you were presented with a blank piece of paper, you'd never be able to write a script. So what you do is you go to the store and you buy those refrigerator magnets of poetry and you and you write your script on the refrigerator using all these preassembled words. That's kind of what a great deal of film composing has become. Wow, if that makes sense. No, it does. It it's does. about the it's about the assembly of sort of pre-established bits into something new, which is which in a sense is is an extension of of the development of the kind of music that Kanye West makes. It's like it's it's the idea of sure. 
it's like not, sampling that hip hop brought to yeah, the table. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the idea you know? of what, by experimenting and learning what works, is is only the same as like you, like what you described earlier with McCartney going. Well, if we remember it, then it must be good. Um, right. Wow, that's blowing my mind. Um, so what you know what I'm sort of up against because I'm a bit of a purist, I suppose. I mean, I love experimentation hmm. and I love synthesizers and I you know I love the score to Blade Runner and I just watched the I finally got to see the sequel and I thought the score to that was really interesting how it managed to I think evoke the texture of the original and yet um it was made in a totally different way. You know, the Vangelis's score was handcrafted and thematic and this score didn't really have a theme in the same way that Vangelis's did. No, true. Yeah, You know, the only theme that they used really was they brought back Vangelis's theme for the climax of the emotional climax of the movie. Um, and it's just a difference. And, and it's not only a difference in what composers do, what composers bring to the table and what they're capable of, but it's also, what filmmakers want to hear, you know, Dennis Villanueva has a sound that he wants to hear that's different than what Spielberg wants to hear, you know, and Zack Snyder, what he, what he wants his film music to be is different than what Spielberg wanted it to be. And where I'm incredibly lucky to bring it back around to uh, Hitler and Bigfoot is that Bob, Bob and I, we miss that old, traditional style of film scoring where the music helped tell the story and had themes and worked the way a Spielberg score works or a Robert Zemeckis score works or uh, Howard Hawks or, you know, Michael Curtiz, you know, the way these film or Coppola, you know, or Lucas, the way these directors used music versus the way other people are using music today. You know, we all have favorites and those are some of mine. Well, look, uh, it, 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 You've been very generous with your time, so <laughs> I've droned on. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure and an education. I mean, I feel like I feel like what you just described there at the end is something that I've been sort of thinking about generally across popular culture. I feel like there's a there's a kind of with this with with the surge of technology we've lived through because obviously I mean I'm, I'm I think I'm exactly the same. I'm, I'm born seventy one, so I think we're more or less the same yep. age, aren't we? Um, so we straddle the the pre-internet and the rabid introduction of technology into our lives. And I feel like there's, there's, there's this phrase, which is like the search for authenticity, which is, you know, the, the things that mm-hmm. are real. I think it's why handmade stuff and why things made at lower, low, lower levels of production have become, I've become to gain value again amongst people. People see, and I think musically maybe like what you're describing there is that there's a, there's something that in the, in the race to introduce all this new, maybe there's been a few babies thrown out of bathwater, and we can and going back and 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 exploring what else we can do with that in mind is still means there's lots to be had in terms of film music. I think there is. I mean, for me, one of the great joys of symphonic music, or at least acoustic music, we'll say, is it take it literally has to be breathed into life. With, without breath, you can't get any sound out of a flute. Without breath, you can't get any sound out of a, a, a trumpet. You can get breath out of, you can get sound out of a violin or a piano without breathing. But the rhythm of, of a human musician breathing, that, that inhabits mu- acoustic music in a way that electronic music, it's very difficult to pull off. And it's more difficult now than it used to be even with breath controllers, uh, you know, and things like that, like Vangelis, the hoops he had to jump through to make the score to Blade Runner, which is an electronic score. It, but if you really were to, if you read up on it and then you listen to the score, there is such an amazing amount of human error built into it, if you will, to, to humanize it, to give it breath. And what's amazing about that score is despite its electronic realization, there's a, there's a palpable sense of breathing in it. And it's only as I've sort of gotten older and more pretentious, you might say, that this concept of breath in music and air, you know, life, is become such a critical part of my feelings about film and music. 
Do you know, but it, but it's like I interviewed a, a woman director called um, Ashley Clark, who did one of the the Devil's Doorway at Fright Fest this year, and she mm-hmm. she shot she shot a found footage film, but it was set in 1960. So they so as it was period, they made all the film on real 16 mil stock as opposed to shoot digitally right. and then and then coloring it, yeah. coloring it to make it. Because she said because it wouldn't it, it, after about 20 minutes the eye would begin to see almost like the patterns that computers create that is just pretending to be 16 mil. Whereas 16 mil is just random because it's organic and it's reacted to the real air, the hands and the, fed the film into the machine and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then that, that cannot be replicated. It can only be made. Right. And I think that's what you're saying, aren't you, with the, the idea of if someone's, if somebody's, some part of what's being made has involved the, 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 the lungs of a human being, then that in itself is is a unique moment, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm not an anti-digital filmmaker either. I think I actually think digital cameras have liberated filmmaking in a lot of ways, and CG has liberated filmmaking in a lot of ways. And for all the stones people want to throw at the prequels, I still think that Watto is a believable character in those Star Wars movies. I mean, he may be a sort of uh, there's an argument to be made that he's in bad taste sort of, you know, uh, demographically, but you know, there's a performance in the eyes there, especially in the second movie where he sees Hayden Christensen and rec- struggles to recognize him as the little kid. That's a performance. And, you know, then Gollum on the, on the heels of that, which is staggering in its, uh, how good it is. You know what I mean? Um, and that's just not possible. And you watch E.T. and it, what's what's amazing about E.T. is that you see the cracks in the way it was made now, but the music gives it life and gives it breath. And so you sort of forgive it in the same way that you can look at The Wizard of Oz and see the cracks in the in the filmmaking. But you go, well, it was 1939. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you can see the wires on the monkeys or whatever. You know, yeah. same with Superman, the movie. You know, you can see the artifacts of how that was made. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't still work. Well, look, I, I, I think I could listen to Basil. Um, I can never pronounce his name. Is it Polidoris? Polidoris? Yeah. I could yeah. listen to his score for Conan much more than I could ever watch the film over and over. Um, it's sure. just a wonderful, yeah, I mean, I... wonderful work of art. Same with Crystal Skull. I've took up far too much of your time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a close to our podcast. Look, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, sorry I went on so much. No, don't please don't apologise. It's been fantastic. Um, and uh, I'll uh, I want I'm gonna have to think of another reason to have you on. Um, okay. Well, I'll try to score another movie before too long, and we can talk about that. Indeed, no, because I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for your time. Me too, man. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, 
or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.